0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and welcome. Uh, good to see so many familiar faces. My name is Jamie Boskett. I serve as the president and CEO of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm thrilled to have you all here this afternoon um, as we enjoy this new time lecture with uh, Craig Chapman. Uh, speaking on his most recent book, Disaster on the Spanish Main. Today's lecture, I would like to note, is also really special for us because it's one of many in a long tradition of collaboration between us and the Society of the Colonial Wars uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Society was founded in 1894 to commemorate the role of Americans from Virginia who served in the military and in high civil positions during the colonial period. Uh, And we're delighted that the Society has supported today's lecture as well as some others, uh, a few upcoming events before we introduce today's speaker. Later this evening, if you'd like to pass the word, if you live, particularly if you live here in the neighborhood, we'll be having a very special version of our first Fridays at the BMHC. Uh, as many of you know, this is a tradition we have started just a few months ago since the reopening and reimagining of the museum, and it is just as lively as the place ever is, with hundreds of families. Uh, Coming here for free access to the museum, the whole building's open, food trucks, live music, you name it. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, Tonight, in marking the one-year anniversary since our reopening, it's amazing how it's flown by. Uh, And and one great measure of success, of course, is that we've now had more than 100,000 people come see the new exhibits here in the building, which is really very encouraging for us. Uh, but tonight in this celebration, we'll be co-hosting First Fridays with the Museum District Association and have live music by BioRitmo, which is just an incredible group. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy that. Five o'clock tonight. Tomorrow, if you just haven't had enough, you could just camp out. Tomorrow at 10:30, uh, join us for a special collections focused program called A Picture is Worth a Thousand Words: Photography in Virginia, when our staff here at the museum will provide an in-depth discussion on how photography has helped document and interpret life in Virginia and feature some rare images from our collection that are not on display. If you're a photography nut, you really should come to that. Next Thursday, May 11, join us here in the Robbins Family Forum at noon for the uh, Rachel Beanland's lecture, Turning Fact into Fiction. Rachel will speak about her newest book, The House is on Fire, a work of historical fiction about Richmond's Theater Fire of 1811. Uh, I've heard from several, I've not read it yet myself, but it's on the list, Um, everyone who has read it has really enjoyed it, Uh, in the way in which she's woven together true historical data, much of which was was harvested here from our own collection. Okay, now on to today's program. In 1740, Great Britain mounted its largest ever overseas expedition. The goal was to seize control of Spain's West Indies uh, possessions during the so-called War of Jenkins' Ear. Because of the substantial number of sailors and soldiers required, Britain resorted to enlisting recruits from its North American colonies here uh, to serve in the King's Army. The British launched joint land sea attacks on modern-day Colombia, Cuba, and Panama, but failed in all three missions. As many as 15,000 Britons and American colonists perished on the expedition, as many would, this is as many as would die in the entire French and Indian War. As Captain Lawrence Washington, the older half-brother and role model to George, remarked, war is horrid, in fact. To take us on this historical journey today, Craig Chapman is the author of three incredible military histories which demonstrate his mastery of America's military past spanning a period of some three centuries. Uh, and I'd like to note Craig himself is a part of our collective military story having served some 28 years as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army and National Guard. In his first book, More Terrible Than Victory, Craig explored the wartime service of the first regiment of volunteers raised in North Carolina. Then, in Battle Hardened, he traces uh, the story of Bill Chapman's journey from D-Day to VE day And that's that's your father, right? That's incredible. Uh, As an infantry lieutenant in the Second World War through Bill's own recollections in his wartime letters home to his wife. His most recent book and the subject of today's talk, Disaster on the Spanish Main, turns our focus to the 18th century into a all too often forgotten episode in North American history. I thank you all for joining, especially for all those joining us online. Uh, thrilled to have you all here in person. Thank you so much for being members and supporters of this institution. And I hope that you would now please join me in welcoming Craig Chapman.
1: Well, good afternoon. I am Craig Chapman, author of Disaster on the Spanish Main. Uh, Before I begin, I just want to extend my thanks to Jamie, James Brooks, Graham Dozier, and the rest of the staff here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and much appreciate your hospitality. We're gonna cover some unfamiliar territory here uh, in discussing the War of Jenkins' Ear. I know quite a few questions might come up during the course of this, so I'd ask you to hang on to them. We will have an opportunity uh, to go over the questions that you might have. In October of 1740, 36 years before the Declaration of Independence, 400 Virginia colonists joined troops from Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, North Carolina, Maryland, and traveled to the Spanish West Indies during a conflict known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. So, before I go any further, can I see a show of hands of any of you who have even heard of the War of Jenkins' Ear before today? Actually, there's an appreciable number. I'm impressed. (laughs) Very good. Well, the Anglo-Spanish conflict of 1739 to 1744 grew out of trade disputes between Spain and Britain in the West Indies. Spain tried to enforce an onerous trade monopoly on its own New World possessions. And of course, British merchantmen repeatedly tried to violate the trade monopoly by slipping into Spanish ports and selling lower priced English goods To replace the heavily uh, marginalized uh, goods coming off the Spanish treasure ships that they were selling to their own colonists. Spanish authorities tried to interdict this smuggling by commissioning privateers, or what we would call, what they called, guarda costas. They were sent out to uh, impound and return to a Spanish port any British ships found smuggling or even sailing nearby Spanish ports. In one celebrated incident in 1731, Captain Robert Jenkins was captured, or his ship was captured off the coast of Cuba, and he got his ear sliced off by the Spanish Guard of Costa Captain. And you see a cartoon here depicting... Captain Jenkins trying to present his severed ear to British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. Well, naturally, this incident and several others in the following years created quite a fjord within the British merchant community. These merchants obviously asked, well, why should British merchant captains have their ships seized on the open sea when Britain had the biggest navy in the world? Political opposition grew for several years and eventually forced the Walpole government to declare war against Spain in 1739 for the purpose of redressing these perceived uh, losses suffered by British merchants. Uh, In the 19th century, the British historian, Sir Thomas uh, Carlyle coined the phrase the War of Jenkins' Ear Uh, which was really kind of capturing all of the pre-war publicity and propaganda surrounding this particular incident that led to this declaration of war. Now, going into the conflict, the Duke of Newcastle, who was the Secretary of State, uh, Admiral Sir John Norris, who was Admiral of the Fleet, and Admiral Sir Charles Wager, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty, looked at Spain as being a rather weak opponent. I mean, Spain had a very large army, but it was there on the Iberian Peninsula. So they adopted a strategy, which you might describe nowadays as a maritime strategy, of blockading the Spanish Armada in its home ports, giving Britain free reign to send an expeditionary force to the West Indies. Now, they figured that by capturing one of three ports used by the Spanish treasure fleets, they could bring uh, Spain to its knees and seize virtual control of the West Indies. The ports that they had targeted were, oops wrong. Let me get back. There we go. Ports they had targeted were Cartagena de Indias in modern-day Colombia, Veracruz, New Spain in modern-day Mexico, and Havana de Cuba. Any one or more of these ports, they felt would give them control over the Spanish West Indies. Well, they ran into an immediate problem. They found that to do this, they'd need to draw more of their ships out of mothballs. Everyone had to get a full crew complement. And at the same time, they're trying to build up their regiments for the expeditionary force. They just ran out of manpower. They solved their problem when the Duke of Newcastle was rummaging through some old files and found a decade old suggestion from Alexander Spotswood, a former governor here of Virginia. Spotswood claimed that the British could raise 3,000 soldiers from North America to use against the Spaniards in the West Indies. But there was one important condition to raise that number of troops. They would only agree to serve under local officers, not regular British officers. Well, the King, Newcastle and the admirals decided this was a worthwhile deal to get 3,000 men would be enough to launch the expedition. So they came out with terms that would allow the North American colonists to get the same pay, the same red uniforms, the same brown best muskets as the regular forces, but with one interesting exception. They only had to volunteer for the duration of the expedition. Once the expedition was over, they would be returned to their home colonies and they could keep their scarlet uniforms and their muskets, not a bad deal. And for any militia officer or gentleman of means who could raise a full company of 100 men, the king would extend a regular army commission to that officer. Now the key to the success of this program was getting the right officers to volunteer, to step forward, to start recruiting. These would be officers or leaders that men would trust and would be willing to serve under. It also involved a financial risk on the part of these officers. They had to subsist, lodge and pay their recruits with only an expectation of getting a commission, at at which point they would be able to recover their investment. Here in Virginia, four officers were able to recruit full companies of 100 men. And you may recognize the name of one of these, Lawrence Washington. Yeah, as Jamie said, the older half-brother of George Washington. It should be noted THAT HERE IN VIRGINIA THEY WERE HELPED A LITTLE BIT IN GETTING THEIR FULL COMPLEMENT OF of VOLUNTEERS. Uh, THE BURGESSES PASSED A LAW THAT SAID THAT ANY UNATTACHED uh, MAN WHO HAD NO VALUE OR VERIFIABLE FORM OF EMPLOYMENT WAS SUBJECT TO BEING ENLISTED WHETHER HE LIKED IT OR NOT. SO NOT EVERYBODY WAS THAT WILLING TO SERVE. BUT From Massachusetts to North Carolina, dozens of wealthy gentlemen and militia officers enlisted over 4,000 troops. So many that the British ran out of commissions leading some colonies to turn away hundreds of potential recruits. Some officers were not able to secure one of the 30 captains commissions that were brought over and they had to accept a warrant that could be turned into a a commission by the expedition's commander, Major General Lord Cathcart, but that would only happen once they got to the rendezvous point in Jamaica. It was an iffy proposition. One New Jersey officer hedged his bets. He was holding a warrant, kept his company together and got them on board the transport ships for deployment but he left town without paying a hundred pound lodging tab for his troops. He did in fact, in the end, get his commission. The King had designated uh, Alexander Spotswood to be the regimental Colonel of the North American Regiment, as well as being the deputy commander to General Cathcart. Uh, He was promoted to the rank of major general. Unfortunately, during the recruiting campaign, Spotswood died. He was succeeded uh, as Colonel by William Gooch, who was the sitting governor of Virginia at the time. So the regiment would later be known as Gooch's 43rd Regiment of Foot. And you have here a picture of a good old red blooded American soldier from 1740, scarlet uniform and all. Starting in late summer, the companies arrived in camps to begin the, an abbreviated period of training, which by the way, uh, involved a lot more than they might have assumed. Many of them may have been veterans of the militias for their various colonies, but serving as a British soldier was far different than being in the militia and required detailed training on precise uh, execution of the manual of arms, as well as unit exercises. The Virginia companies happened to do their training at Williamsburg Commons. Unfortunately, the expedition's timetable cut short the training. Uh, The recruits had to board transports in late September and in early October, the 36 companies departed from various ports to sail for Jamaica, becoming the first first American troops to ever deploy overseas. At this point, you know, we can say that the effort to raise a British Army regiment in the American colonies had been a success. The colonial soldiers had been enlisted, organized, partially trained, and then deployed. Now, this might be a convenient point to see if anybody might have some questions about just the process of what uh, happened to raise this particular regiment, and you may have some questions about some of the intricacies of being in the British Army. So if anybody has a question at this point, I'd be happy to entertain it. I
0: was um Wait, one second. You know, like
1: yeah. You know, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as I understand, it, uh, serving in the West Indies was Almost a death sentence because of disease and such. Was it possible that the British were eager to uh, raise troops so they wouldn't waste their actual troops uh, to a uh, you know, very unhealthy campaign? Well, you raised a good point. Uh, at the time, the West Indies were notorious as being a deadly place uh, for anybody coming out of Europe. Uh, the British high command. Uh, wasn't so um, uh, disingenuous as to prefer to lose American colonists versus their own British army um, soldiers. But there was some thought that the uh, North American colonists, being in America, were accustomed or acclimated to the Caribbean climate. So the thought was well, if they came from New York or Massachusetts, they would fit right in in Cartagena. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of naivete, but uh, certainly there was a lot of concern about tropical fevers. Uh, And this is worth getting into uh, because at the time, the state of medicine in the world considered the fevers to be endemic to the climate or the environment in the West Indies, which we know is not true, but they thought that anybody coming out of Europe would would be able to survive about six weeks uh, on the land before uh, the spread of tropical fevers would get the better of them and it would take a lot of lives, put make a lot of people sick and ill. And the thought was that, well, this is either from the, the dews coming or the vapors arising from the ground or it was heavily associated with the rainy season so um, the planning for this campaign was to get to the West Indies and capture one of these ports before the late spring rains arrived. And the feeling was, if well, we can get this done quickly enough, uh, we can do it without losing a lot of troops. That We now, knowing what we know about the spread of malaria and yellow fever, It's not the dews or the rains that cause the fever. It's mosquitoes. And uh, we'll see the effect of that in a little bit. Yes, please, down here. What were the economic conditions
0: and motivations behind the economy and the democratic process
1: at that point? Well, yes, you raise a good point. The question is regarding uh, the relative state of the economy in North America versus Britain. And one of the major misgivings the British high command had about hiring or raising a force in North America was that, first of all, they had distrusted the Americans because habitually the Americans were ill-disciplined, tended to complain a lot. And the other thing was that wages were higher in North America than they were in Britain. So the British were you know, had kind of written off, they figured there's nobody's economically desperate enough to enlist in the British army. However, uh, it was Spotswood's suggestion that caught their eye. And when he told them that they could get 3000 recruits out of the colonies, they bought in. And in fact, it turned out that there were enough unattached young men roaming around, there were um, farmers who may not have had their own land people who may have been unemployed or enough just patriotic citizens that they got more than their full complement of people to volunteer, but thank you for asking that question. Okay. Well, let's proceed uh, to the next part, which is how did these Americans fare once they became uh, part of the British Army and fell under British command? And the answer is they did not fare well. Things went downhill for the Americans as soon as they arrived in Jamaica. The victualling Board back in London had somehow overlooked the 3,500 extra daily rations they would need to feed the American troops. And not to mention the fact that the pre-packed ration barrels had not been delivered to Jamaica by the time the Americans got there so there was nothing for them to eat except what they could pull off of their own transport ships. The troops couldn't go into the local economy and buy food themselves because at the time the British paymasters refused to release any funds because the British regiments hadn't arrived in Jamaica yet. In the meantime, Admiral Vernon, who is the Naval commander for this expedition, and had been in the West Indies for a couple of years, ordered the Americans to remain on board their transports. He was afraid that if, uh, the Americans got loose, got off the ship, they would run into Kingston and Port Royal and drink themselves to death in the, in the punch houses there. That, that meant though, that the American troops spent two months sitting aboard their transport ships in the harbor when they could have been out practicing the manual of arms or executing their unit exercises. Keep in mind, these American companies had only trained up to a company level because they had been scattered across the colonies. The regiment had never had an opportunity to get in one place at one time to perform unit exercises at the regimental level. And sadly, their situation did not improve when the main body showed up in January of 1741. The British land force commander, Lord Cathcart, had died during the voyage and was replaced by his deputy, Brigadier General Thomas Wentworth. One of Wentworth's first actions was to pull the Americans off the transports and have them conduct a review. The barely trained force made a poor impression and the general dismissed them as a fighting force. Apparently, he also seemed to have a personal grudge against Colonel Gooch because he divided the American regiment into four separate battalions and then spread them into three separate British brigades in effect that left no one for Colonel Gooch to command. Now, I don't know what Wentworth's motivations were for this, but to me, this kind of looks like vindictiveness. And the only thing I can think about is that you recall that Gooch succeeded Spotswood as the regimental commander, whereas Wentworth succeeded Spotswood as the deputy commander for the expedition. William Gooch had combat experience during the War of Austrian Succession. Thomas Wentworth had no combat experience up to this point. so I'm just wondering if a little bit of jealousy might have been, you know, part of his decision to strip all the troops from out underneath Colonel Gooch. Well, things got worse for the Americans. Admiral Vernon's fleet operated with undermanned crews and he appealed to General Wentworth for soldiers to backfill the missing sailors. The general decided that he could honor Vernon's request by conveniently getting rid of his American troops. If they couldn't be of service on the battlefield, they might be a help to the Navy. The American regiment then got further fractured as the men were dispersed among 30-plus warships. And by the way, when I say dispersed, I mean it. There was no unit cohesion to where the troops were sent. Some soldiers reported aboard a warship where there wasn't a single American officer aboard the ship. Other ships may have had three or four American officers, but they didn't necessarily have men belonging to their companies on the same ship. And it really didn't matter because aboard ship, the American officers had zero authority. Um, As one officer put it, the lowliest officer on the ship, the cook, could order around the most distinguished American officer aboard. So Captain Washington, we need to point out, was given a berth on Admiral Vernon's flagship, HMS Princess Caroline. Something by the way, which he definitely appreciated. But let me show you the drawing that you see here. This is of a naval gun crew and this is a pretty accurate depiction of what most of the American soul soldiers did during this expedition. Interesting, they volunteer for a land campaign and they end up fighting as a naval crew. Putting them aboard also had an unintended consequence. If you recall, one of the important conditions for these American soldiers to volunteer was that they would serve under local officers. And now they were serving aboard ship subject to shipboard discipline by naval captains and their bosuns. This obviously had a really negative impact on the morale of the American troops. Okay, well, let's proceed to the campaign. Admiral Vernon, who had been in the West Indies for a couple of years and pretty much dominated the expedition's decision-making, picked Cartagena de Indias in modern-day Colombia as the expedition's primary objective. Now, let me get you a little oriented to the terrain here. Here is the city of Cartagena, surrounded by walls, bastions, and defended with numerous cannon. Uh, Its suburb also was... uh, walled and defended, Gethsemane. And those were the two bridges linking Cartagena to the mainland. Cartagena itself sits on a long narrow coastal strip. So making any direct attack would be very difficult. The dominant terrain feature is Cartagena's outer bay and inner bay, the Surgidero, by which almost all provisions came into the city of Cartagena. On the mainland side, uh, Cartagena is defended by a hill and with a Castillo, San Felipe on top of that, uh, which dominates the city itself and the approaches to it from the mainland, right? The entrances into the outer bay, there's the Boca Grande uh, channel, which was silted in to a very low depth and really unusable by any heavy ships. But south of the island of Bomba was the Boca Chica Channel. And this is the main shipping entrance into the outer bay. So looking at the situation, uh, the British kind of figured that there's no way to mount a, uh, an amphibious attack against Cartagena and, this narrow coastal strip really didn't provide any maneuver room to approach the city, which meant that they preferred a indirect approach, which would be come in through Boca Chica, come up here, land troops on the mainland, and then attack Cartagena from the landward side. The campaign began on uh, March 9th and 10th with a amphibious landing on uh, the island of Tierra Bamba. This was designed to uh, capture Castillo San Luis, but first they needed a heavy naval bombardment to destroy the outer uh, outer batteries that were defending the coastline of Tierra Bamba. And this is what the American troops were mostly involved in. About 600 of them were aboard the ships that were used to destroy those uh, outside batteries. The landing itself was made entirely by British regiments. Once they were on land, the British began their siege of Castillo San Luis, which you can see right here. And this is where they had landed on March 9th and 10th. The siege had to begin by building an artillery breaching battery to knock down one of the bastions on the Castillo. However, the work was disrupted by a Spanish Spanish artillery fire coming from the Abanicos battery on the opposite side of the channel. And here is the Spanish battery. It was lobbing shells across the channel and disrupting the work uh, detail, trying to construct the breaching battery. To eliminate this threat, Admiral Vernon sent a raiding party ashore on the night of March 18th and 19th. Captain Lawrence Washington was one of the two company commanders on this raid. The force stuck into a bay south of Abanicos, that almost ended in disaster. They approached in, uh, if you, by the way, the map itself is turned 90 degrees, north is to the left. So they were landing south of Abanicos, and as they approached the land, two cannon shots went right over the head of the landing party turns out that the Spaniards had an unseen battery here at Veradero so the raiders jumped out of their ships, rushed ashore and overwhelmed the battery before they could get off another uh, salvo now if you've ever been rowing out in a launch or a barge in open water just you can imagine what a salvo of grapeshot would have done to that <laughs> raiding party it, it appears that the Spaniards had their guns already loaded with round shot, and uh, their aim was a little high, but this could have been a, a catastrophe for the raiding party. But they got ashore, took out the Veradero battery, split into two columns to attack Abanicos from the rear, and a rather wild nighttime delay, the raiders captured the battery and ended up spiking its guns. The British continued working on their breaching battery. And you can see on this map, this is where the breaching battery was located. It began firing on Castillo, San Luis on March 22nd. By March 25th, they had opened a breach in the Northwest bastion. And that evening, British regiments stormed the breach and captured the Castillo. While they were doing that, Captain Washington and a mixed force of soldiers and sailors coming off of the Admiral Vernon ships rode in barges to Fort San Jose, which you'll see right up here. The Spaniards had already abandoned Fort San Jose and when the Americans and British sailors stormed into it, they found it was defended by one drunken Spaniard and his dog. So, in the meantime, of course, the British—or excuse me—the Spanish ships that were helping to defend uh, Castillo San Luis were destroyed, scuttled, and burned. Except for one, um, Admiral Blas de Lezo's flagship was captured by the British and would be later converted into a floating battery. Now, these actions marked a significant victory for the British. Mostly for Admiral Vernon, who was able to enter Cartagena's outer bay and get his troops out of the winds and waves of the Caribbean Sea. He forced his way right here through the Boca Chica Channel and was now had free rein to maneuver in the outer bay and force his way up into the inner bay, or it is called the Surgidero. The British then proceeded to the next phase of the operation on April 5th. A few British regiments landed on the mainland east of Cartagena, along with 200 American skirmishers. They landed right here at Tejar la Gracia and then proceeded to advance up to the, the hamlet of La Quinta, which is located on this neck of land between Cartagena and the mainland. On the way there, they encountered a Spanish blocking force just short of La Quinta and at the exit of a narrow defile on this uh, particular route. General Wentworth decided that he was gonna send them, uh, send in his Grenadiers, which succeeded in routing that spanish blocking force. He did find a convenient use for his American skirmishers because he put them out here in the woods as a flank guard for the Grenadiers, but the Grenadiers did the main work and cleared the the area. The British occupied La Quinta uh, as their uh, intermediate objective. And also they used that as their main encampment for the next phase of the operation, which was the siege of Castillo San Felipe. Now for the siege operation, the British had to re-land their artillery and all the baggage and equipment that they needed for the siege. That meant that they needed more manpower. And for the first time, the generals insisted that Admiral Vernon let go of all of his American soldiers and put them ashore. So for most of the Americans, this is the first time they'd gotten off a ship in months. And it had been an equal amount of time since they had even seen their their company, their fellow soldiers from their own company or or their officers. But the British immediately put them to work to help um, get the encampment settled and equipped uh, as well as offload the artillery for the breaching battery. The idea was that we would now proceed to siege operations against Castillo San Felipe, which sat here on this hill. But strangely, over the next couple of days, the British really didn't advance their siege lines. The problem was that General Wentworth was looking at the dwindling number of men that he had to work with to both guard his his encampment as well as construct this new breaching battery. By this time, scurvy, dysentery, dehydration, and the onset of yellow fever was causing troops to fall sick and the strength started dripping away bit by bit. Wentworth was also concerned because the rainy season was due to arrive at Cartagena within the next few weeks. In a rash decision, the general abandoned siege tactics and ordered a direct assault against the Castillo instead. Wentworth planned a surprise night attack using two British brigades of 500 men each. One brigade would strike the Castillo on the north side, right here. By the way, the Castillo itself is a triangular fortification. The main effort was going to be against the southwest face of the Castillo, which meant that the, this body of 500 troops who had to skirt around and hit it from that angle. The British brigades were followed by 500 American pioneers who carried wool packs and scaling ladders for use by the British uh, Grenadiers, but they carried no firearms. That meant that most of the Americans uh, who were entering their first combat action went in unarmed. Well, the attack was a disaster They lost the element of surprise. One of the British brigades got lost and struck the wrong side of the Castillo. The Spanish infantry in the outside trenches succeeded in pinning both British brigades down on the slopes. When the American pioneers arrived on the scene, they dumped the useless ladders and wool packs. Half of them fled, but it appears that half of them stayed to fight alongside the British troops. At dawn, the city's guns fired on the exposed British troops and the Viceroy from Cartagena launched a counterattack that drove the British from the field. The failed attack cost the British nearly 700 casualties from an already strained pool of effective soldiers. Afterward, Wentworth went out of his way to criticize his American troops. What much added to our misfortune was the wretched behavior of the Americans. Now, considering that the Americans went into the action unarmed, none of the British troops got close enough to the Castillo to use either the wool packs or the scaling ladders, which, by the way, were 10 feet too short to reach the top of the walls. Wentworth's complaint sounds like a diversion from the real reasons for the defeat which was his ineffective tactical plan, but he wasn't about to admit that. Interestingly, the muster rolls showed that of the 500 Americans involved in this attack as unarmed pioneers, one out of five were either killed or wounded in the action, which tells me that they were much more heavily engaged than General Wentworth gave them credit for. Well, the generals wanted to revert to the siege operations, which was all the more sensible plan from the very beginning. But now, manpower was really getting critical. They were missing the casualties from the attack and more and more men were falling sick every day. The generals appealed to Admiral Vernon to supplement that the land force with sailors coming off of his ships. After all, you know they had helped him out before, but this time, Vernon turned them down. He was not about to risk his crew members ashore and getting tropical disease themselves. His decision effectively ended the Cartagena campaign. Over the next few weeks, the army reembarked on the ships. They also brought on board water barrels, which were mostly empty, except for all the mosquitoes breeding in them that carried the yellow fever virus. And we were talking a little bit earlier about what's the cause of disease? Well, it wasn't the ground or the rains, it was the mosquitoes. So what happened while the ships lay in harbor, uh, more and more troops started showing some gruesome symptoms such as fatigue, fevers, jaundice, and black vomit. The expedition sailed from Cartagena in late April and early May but thousands died on the voyage. It's sad to note that the generals and admirals chose to abandon the siege of Cartagena to avoid the deadly rains, yet the expedition still got ravaged by disease. The expedition spent the next two months recovering from scurvy and yellow fever. Captain Washington used this time to write to his father, Augustine, and confess that War is horrid, in fact. He also alluded to the suffering of his men at the hands of the British Army and the Royal Navy. Quote, our regiment has not received that treatment we expected. But I am resolved to persevere in the undertaking. Despite the huge failure at Cartagena, the British still had a substantial land force and naval supremacy in the Caribbean. Enough for the generals and admirals to entertain another objective. This time, they selected a less challenging Spanish port. <coughs> Excuse me, Santiago de Cuba. All right, Vernon uh, ruled out how to take the uh, using his ships to break into the harbor because it was defended by a Castillo at the harbor entrance. He insisted that the army have to reduce the Castillo before the Navy would get involved. That meant land in the army, somewhere east of Santiago de Cuba and letting them initiate a siege against the Castillo. Regrettably, the generals didn't bother to pin Vernon down about where he intended to land them. Vernon decided to put them ashore at Guantanamo Bay Guantanamo Bay by the way is 45 miles east of Santiago de Cuba. The admiral had wanted to occupy the bay all along because it was a convenient place for him to shelter his ships while the army did its business. He sold the army on the idea that there was a convenient highway from the village of Santiago uh, from the village of Guantanamo to Santiago. But the Army got its first look at the terrain when Captain Washington's company, coming off of HMS Princess Caroline, excuse me, HMS Boyne by this time, and several naval officers went on a recon up the Augusta River. And down here you see the Augusta River emptying into Cartagena Bay. And they took a recon up to about this point into the interior. They reached a ridgeline of low hills where they got their first good look at the forested countryside. It became obvious to the generals that the Army couldn't march 10 days through the uncultivated terrain without draft animals and wagons. You know, I'd like to ask, you know, how many 24-pound cannonballs do you think you could carry in your backpack? At any rate, Wentworth insisted that the Army would not make an inland march, and he demanded that Vernon use his ships to break into the harbor, something Vernon refused to do. The generals and admirals could not come to an agreement about a strategy for reducing Santiago and they sat at Guantanamo for the next several months doing nothing except occupying the bay. Then in November, an outbreak of malaria overwhelmed the army and killed hundreds more. Once again, the expedition failed to take its objective and returned to Jamaica. Fed up with the awful treatment their men suffered aboard Vernon's warships, the officers of the American Regiment issued a formal complaint to General Wentworth. Discipline on the ships was harsh and the living conditions were poor. The officers mentioned one case of a Virginia soldier who endured repeated beatings from a Naval officer and subsequently died. Despite this complaint, Vernon still needed crew members and Wentworth let him keep the Americans aboard ship. The expedition made one last attempt in March 1742 to capture a meaningful objective. They picked Panama City. The operation would become a little tricky because it meant that the army had to cross, by the way. Excuse me, I got ahead of myself here on the slides. The expedition set sail for the Isthmus of Panama on March 1742, but Vernon cost them the element of surprise when he barged into Portobello before the army could send out some troops to intercept the retreat of the garrison. The generals, knowing that the Spanish authorities had been alerted to the invasion, called off the whole mission and didn't even make a landing at Portobello. The expedition returned once again to Jamaica without having captured anything. By the fall of 1742, the government in London had tired of the expensive West Indies expedition. They canceled the expedition, dissolved the expeditionary land force, recalled both Vernon and Wentworth. As for the 4,000 Americans who departed the colonies in dozens of transports, the survivors came back in just four ships. So how should we sum up the West Indies expedition of 1740 to 1742? It's safe to say it was one of the worst campaigns in British military history. 13 to 15,000 soldiers and sailors died during this expedition. That's about as many as the British lost in the entire French and Indian War. 2,400 of the American volunteers perished. That's about as many as America lost in Afghanistan over a 20-year period. Well, what did the British accomplish for all this human sacrifice? Nothing or nada, as these people in the Spanish West Indies still say. The British and Americans ended up parting ways, each despising the other. Now, the war of Jenkins' ear lingered for another couple of years until Britain and Spain became embroiled in the larger War of the Austrian Succession. So in fact, the War of Jenkins Ear never had its own resolution. It got basically absorbed into wider conflict in Europe. However, during the War of the Austrian Succession or what we call King George's War, the British government asked William Gooch to organize some of the veterans from the expedition to form the core of a unit to attack the French in Canada. Well, Gooch splashed cold water on that idea. <clears throat> we are not to expect any of those men who were on the last expedition. He explained that the colonists had lost faith in the British Army after the ordeal in the West Indies. Their experience through a lasting cloud of suspicion on the regular forces that would limit future recruiting efforts in subsequent colonial conflicts. Instead, plenty of American colonists enlisted, but they enlisted in provincial regiments with local officers to fight in King George's War and the French and Indian War. These colonial regiments and the officers and men who formed them would become the foundation of the Continental Army in 1775. Well, thank you for your attention. Hopefully, you've learned a little bit more about this relatively obscure war and Virginia's participation in it. Now, I'd be happy to entertain any questions that you might have. Yeah, no. please. to 15,000 deaths, but I didn't see any numbers for the entire out of how many. The It's worth it a little bit to talk about the casualties, the fatalities, I should say, uh, and kind of break that down a little bit. There were about a total of 13,000 soldiers in participating in this campaign over the two years. Uh, About two thirds of the British soldiers who participated died. About 60% of the American soldiers who participated died. In addition, uh, there were about thirteen to fifteen thousand British sailors involved in this expedition, and I would guess somewhere between five and six thousand of them died. So, out of, you can see, out of the expedition, probably twenty-eight thousand people in total participated from the British side, but thirteen to fifteen thousand of them never came home. Yes, please. I
0: was one of those who was
1: ignorant of uh, this war until well, I. Well, don't it. feel lonely. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, um, but this morning I was thinking, this was a war launched
1: by uh, a war of conquest launched by a major power, and it turned out to be a disaster. And I thought this sounds familiar. yeah a lesson to be learned right Uh, yes the uh, the war started under political pressure from the merchant class and the opposition party in britain and a lot of it was motivated by the fact that spain looked relatively weak compared to the power of britain So I think a lot of this was people smelled an opportunity. Wow, if we could capture the Spanish West Indies, now we would be the ones beginning those 11 million silver pesos that were coming in through the treasure ships out of the new world. Uh, And at the same time, that would clobber the Spanish economy. So I think a lot of this was the desire, hey, this is an opportunity, not just a chance to redress perceived wrongs of our ships in the Caribbean. But um, Robert Walpole had made a comment during the pre-war debates when he was trying to discourage the idea of going to war with Spain. He made a comment that um, the calculus of relative strength doesn't always bear out in the actual conflict. and it was obviously a prescient comment for what would happen. Yeah, on paper, Britain had definite military advantage, but you can't necessarily predict how a war turns out. Yes, in the uh, the back.
0: Uh, I was curious if Maryland sent troops Yes. With the group, because we heard in Savannah that Oglethorpe prohibited British Catholics (sighs) because he was afraid they'd join with the Spanish. So that was not an issue with Maryland?
1: No. um, Maryland raised three companies uh, for this expedition. Um, And... Obviously, some of them were Catholic, and there was a huge concern. Uh, after the uh, retreat from Cartagena, General Wentworth sent a letter <clears throat> saying that he was going to renew a recruiting campaign uh, up in it back in the colonies to get replacements for all the people who had died at Cartagena. But he stated he would only recruit soldiers north of the Mason Dixon line <laughs> because. His claim was, well, everybody that we were getting from the southern colonies were either Catholics or convicts, <laughs> so he had kind of a prejudiced view of southern soldiers. Yeah, but uh, he was okay recruiting out of New England or Pennsylvania. Please, uh, given that the uh, expedition was uh, did not go very well, why was Lawrence so impressed with Vernon that he named his plantation after him? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, (laughs) but to keep this in mind, Admiral Vernon was Britain's national hero. Uh, He had captured the Portobello on the Panama uh, Peninsula at the very beginning of the war in 1739, and there was a huge celebration about that, you know, relatively minor victory. So, he was a big name and Washington was quite happy to be serving on the same ship with Admiral Vernon. So he was rubbing elbows with him quite frequently. And it may have been that general reputation that uh, he still admired. And was willing to name Mount Vernon after him, which by the way, uh, Mount Vernon is to my knowledge, the only memorial to this war, to this expeditionary force yeah, in, the, in America. Yeah, please. Um, I'm on the way. There <laughs> yeah. uh, you go, man. Um,
0: is the um, problems between um, the generals and the admirals, et cetera, still a problem in wars that are being fought now?
1: Uh, <laughs> ask the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, this goes down in history It's probably the, one of the worst examples of joint military leadership. At the end of the, at the end of this expedition, uh, General Wentworth wrote back to London, claiming that Vernon was deliberately sabotaging the mission to discredit the Walpole government, and Vernon was accusing the generals of treason. So. Yeah, pretty bitter feelings. But what's going on here, it does really talk to an important military principle. That's unity of command. In this expedition, there was no overall commander. You had a land force commander, you had a naval commander, each supreme in his own sphere. And in London, the thinking was, well, when they have to jointly decide something they would have a joint council of war and the two sides would hash it out to the you know best to to serve the king's interest well clearly that just didn't work Uh, and the primary reason is admiral vernon knew nothing about siege tactics it was apparent in his you know in his letters because literally almost every day he hounded general wentworth well why don't you attack it's just a paltry little fort there. Go ahead and charge it. Now, of course, General Wentworth knows that you don't send infantry troops with bayonets to attack a castle wall, right? At the same time, Wentworth didn't have an appreciation of how the Navy operated, that the winds and currents were something that the ships had to deal with constantly. The two sides just didn't understand how the other did business. In fact, though, this problem persisted Really, I think until World War II, when General Eisenhower secured the agreement of the combined chiefs of staff of Britain and the United States, that there would be one overall commander for the campaign in Northwest Europe. And I don't think that had ever really been accomplished before that. And today, uh, if you look around the globe and at the military command structure, every one of these theaters of war, our uh, forces are aligned with, are commanded by a unified uh, combatant commander who has responsibility for all forces, naval, air, land, and and including now intelligence and space. So we learned that lesson over time, but it took a while to accomplish. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, that's very interesting.